Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tim Matsis. When you get into economic trouble and you're made bankrupt, somebody from the insolvency service comes around and they take a register of all your assets and then they work out what they're going to take off you, which is most of it, and then they sell it and distribute it to your creditors. And so that's usually when someone like me gets a phone call from the person who's about to lose all their stuff. And they come up with all kinds of wonderful ideas. They say, Tim, I'm in trouble. I've invested in this and this and this and I've lost a lot of money. But I've also bought a new car and a new house and a nice boat. And my wife's got a new handbag and a watch and all those sorts of things. Uh, I don't want to lose what I've got. What if I, because they're going to make me bankrupt, what if I give it all to my wife and say it's not mine? Will that get me off the hook? Sorry, (laughs) that's been tried before. Well, well, what if what if my brother, you know, or my cousin, or my business mate, if I drop my trailer off over there with all my expensive stuff in it, maybe they won't find it. Say, well, that's been tried before too. Say, well, what if I sell it to him for a very low price, and then he can say it's his? Yes, that's been tried too. And they go through the list of ways in which they try to get rid of their things so that, and if you get my meaning, they're not really getting rid of it. They're really trying to hide it because they hope to get it back someday. Well, this is not a new thing. And today I invite you to turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 16 Because Jesus actually told one of these stories about an insolvency situation. Sort of insolvency. These things have been happening for quite a while. In fact, uh, even the word bankrupt uh, comes from an old Latin term. uh, Something like bancus ruptus or something like that. And it literally means breaking someone's table so that they can't trade anymore. And this is an old Latin phrase. It's been around for a long time. And so Jesus told a story about a man who ran into financial difficulty. So I invite you to look at Luke chapter 16. We're going to start with verse 1 and 2. It says there that Jesus said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. Now I'll pause here for a minute. We don't use the word steward much nowadays except we're on an aeroplane. And it has a different meaning. A steward was someone that you entrusted your goods to. If you were a wealthy person, you didn't want to bother with having to look after all your stuff yourself. You got someone who was smart enough and trustworthy enough and you got them to look after your stuff. And you paid them. You looked after them. They could take their keep out of your assets to look after themselves and their family. But their main job was to look after your stuff and make sure that it increased in value and didn't get wasted. Nowadays we would probably talk about someone as a trustee rather than a steward because people set up trusts to look after their stuff these days and they get trustees to look after it. And of course trustees get paid pretty much like stewards did. 
So Jesus said there was a rich man which had a steward or a trustee, we would say today. And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And so he called him and said to him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, that thou mayest no longer be steward. You can see how this might have happened. The steward got to charge for his services, but as many people complain about trustees and other professionals today, their charges got out of hand. Probably started out driving a Toyota, and as time went on, he started to think he deserved an Audi or a BMW. And so he charged a little bit more. And then his wife wanted a new car, and so she ended up with a, uh, a flash European vehicle, and then they were talking about trading up to a Bentley or something like this, and started, you know, got rid of his old Casio watch and got a tag, or, you know, wife didn't shop at Farmers anymore for the kids. You know, she only wore Gucci or something else like that. And pretty soon, word got around. Your steward's driving a pretty flash car. You must be paying him a bit. And he started to look a bit closer at what this trustee was doing with his stuff. How is it that this guy is driving flash stuff? Must be all coming out of my, my pocket. And so the man in charge got the idea that his steward was systematically robbing him to live this lavish lifestyle. And so he said to him, I want you to be audited. I wanted an account. What have you done with my stuff? The stuff that I've entrusted to you. And so this steward, rightly so, I don't know if you've ever been audited. I'm being audited at the moment over uh, some of the work that I've done. Uh, it's just a regular thing, not because there's any alarm about it. But I can tell you, I always am very careful to cross my T's and dot my I's. I don't like being checked up on. But even when you know you've done everything right, it just does give you a little bit of a, I don't know, a lift, uh, a little bit of nervousness knowing you're going to be looked over. Your paperwork's going to be checked. And so this steward was going to be audited. And the steward got a little bit nervous. It says in verse 3, the steward said within himself, what shall I do? Because it was a foregone conclusion that his Lord was going to take away his stewardship. He knew that when this Lord looked into the books, when he was audited, there was no way he was going to find everything was squeaky clean. He knew just one look in that ledger and he was going to find all the money that he had pilfered, skimmed, stolen. And he was going to be out. He was going to be fired. Now it wasn't enough to lose his job. He knew that when he lost his job, and you can imagine being a professional steward or a trustee around town, if you lose your job for stealing from your boss, what are your chances of getting another job doing the same thing? There's going to be no high ride for you from now on. And so he said, I'm going to get kicked out of my job. I can't dig. I've got, probably gotten a bit uh, old and comfortable, shall we say, well nourished. And I'm ashamed to beg. What can I do? My wife's going to have to give up her car, her flash handbags and her fancy clothes. My kids are going to have to leave the private school, going to have to go to state school from now on. It's going to be so embarrassing. What am I going to do? 
this is usually when people call their lawyer, but by then it's too late. And I'm sure he lost a lot of sleep, wondering, how can I keep what I've got? How can I keep this lifestyle up when I lose my job? And then one night, probably while in the early hours when you know what it's like, you stay up late thinking, and then you wake up early thinking, worrying, it came to him. He had a solution, a plan so cunning that he was sure it was going to work. He said in verse 4, I'm resolved what to do so that when I'm put out of the stewardship, other people will receive me into their houses. So he called in his Lord's debtors and this is what he did. He said, how much do you owe? A million? Hmm. Are you a friend of mine? Sure. How good a friend are you? Like really good? I suppose so. What if I was to let you off half of that debt? So you only owe me five only owe the master five hundred thousand. Would we be good friends if I did that? Oh, you'd be a really good friend. Alright, sign this handed him a piece of paper, signed at the bottom, witnessed. All right, mate, see you later. The next guy came in. How much do you owe? Well, it's about five million. It's creeping up a bit. Are we friends? Well, I suppose so. If I let you off two and a half million dollars, if I reduce that debt down to half of what you owe, would we be good friends? Oh man, you'd be the best friend. I'd, I'd write you a birthday card, I'd invite you to Christmas dinner. Alright, sign here. Two and a half million dollars given away, just like that. The next guy came in, biggest creditor ever. Ten million dollars, I think. Are we friends? You can imagine how it went, can't you? Five million dollars given away. Now before he had just stolen from his boss for himself. But now, now he's giving away money hand over fist to everybody. He's not just stealing from his employer. He's going to make him go bankrupt himself. He's giving away his boss's money. And so he's called into the audit. The boss calls him in, he opens the books. It's a disaster. A complete train wreck. It made his stealing look like really nothing when he saw how much money he had given away to all the people that owed the boss money. Now the boss could have been horrified. But as he looked at what this man had done, he couldn't help but admire him. You know, have you ever met people like this? People that do bad things, but they're really good at it? You know, they make movies about these kind of people. There was a, uh, you know, if you, I used to waste my time watching these things, but there was a very famous story. It's a true story. They made a movie out of it about a guy who was good at impersonating people and, and forging checks and things like that. I think they called it Catch Me If You Will or something like that. 
Anyway, he you know, pretended to be an airline pilot and a teacher and a doctor even, you know, all these kinds of things. And uh, terribly dishonest. But you can't help but admire the guy for being so smart. And so this boss sat down and he thought to himself, you have really ripped me off. But my, you are a smart fellow. <laughs> you are a smart fellow. You know, Jesus told this story. And the most shocking thing is not just that the boss thought this guy was smart, but Jesus actually had, a, in a way, admired him as well. Now, you don't think that Jesus would admire a guy that did this sort of thing. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, The Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are, in their generation, wiser than the children of light. Let me put that in plain English for you. Jesus is saying that this dishonest steward, this worldly-minded man, was smarter than most people who go to church. Now, I know Christians like to think we've got it sort of worked out. You know, we've read at least parts of the Bible, hopefully most of it. We understand some things about the world that the other people out there don't understand, especially Bible prophecy and stuff. We know where things are headed. We're privileged, aren't we? But Jesus here says that worldly-minded people like this man are smarter than most of the folks sitting here. Don't stone me. Isn't that scary? How is that? How is it that this dishonest man is smarter than most Christians? Yeah. You see, this man figured out a way to get out of his situation. But what most people sitting in a church don't realise is that they're in a situation too. They just haven't figured out their way out of it yet. And Jesus is sitting there talking to his disciples and just beyond the disciples were the religious leaders always listening on, trying to catch him out. And they're sitting there thinking to themselves, huh, how can this dishonest man, the man, they all knew the story, it had been in the newspapers, they'd seen it plastered over Facebook, they knew who he was talking about. How is it this dishonest man that we all look down on is smarter than us? Yes, he was in a situation. What situation are we in? What do you think is wrong with us that we need to save ourselves from? As far as they could see, they weren't in debt to anybody. Not in this man's kind of trouble. Jesus pressed the point harder. He told them exactly what they needed to do to avert the situation that they were certainly going to face very shortly. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus says to them, <clears throat> Make to yourselves friends, an old phrase here, from the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Let me put that in plain English. Jesus is saying to them, You folk are in a dangerous situation too. You are going to face a problem. And unless you do something about it, 
by copying this man's example and being smart, you're going to be kicked out and have nowhere to go. There was a crisis that was about to hit them as a nation. And it's a crisis that's going to face every Christian. And Jesus says, unless we are smart about it, unless we learn something from this dishonest man, we're going to find ourselves out on our ear. How are we going to do it? What was wrong with these guys? What was the situation they faced? Jesus is saying to them, you folk are trustees. You're stewards too. And you have wasted your master's goods on yourselves. You see, when these people became a nation, they were just a bunch of slaves, weren't they? Let's have a look. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. Listen to what Moses said to them, the Israelites. He says, The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen or slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Did they owe God? Did they deserve to be rescued? No. They were just a bunch of slaves, a bunch of nobodies. So God had taken them out of slavery and said, because I love you, even though you're not a very great nation, just a few of you, you know, one man and his family, 12 sons and their children, and their children's children, I'm going to take you out of slavery and I'm going to make you a great nation. Wow. Kind of like a Cinderella story, isn't it? Rags to riches. And then God entrusted them with things that he had given to no other people on the earth. He chose this family of slaves to make the greatest nation on earth. Listen to what it says in Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. Paul writes this. He says, What advantage does the Jew have? Much every way, but chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now if God was going to choose some people to make a divine revelation to, you think he maybe would choose someone who was smart and educated and you know up there. But he takes a bunch of slaves, a bunch of nobodies, who could never claim any credit for themselves, because they were nobodies, and he takes them and makes them a great nation and gives them the knowledge of the divine. He reveals himself to them. They saw miracles before their eyes. They could take no credit for themselves. They were hopeless. But God committed to them the knowledge of heaven, a knowledge of himself. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. Moses again speaking. He says, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land where you're going to possess it, in the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. Keep therefore and do them, 
For this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear of all these statutes and say, Surely this is a great nation, a great and wise and understanding people. In other words, God was going to make them the envy of every other nation who would look at these people and say, Wow, how is it that these guys, well, they don't have policemen. You know, we've got standing armies for a king to make to enforce the law. But how is it that these guys can abide as, as, as you know, 12 tribes and there's no standing police force? How does that happen? How is it that they don't have adultery and, and they don't have stealing and they, they don't have, uh, you know, children disobeying their parents? And how is all this possible? Well, maybe they do have it, but it's not really a problem in society. You know, like we have problems now, don't we? We have a suicide problem in New Zealand. Yeah? People are so feeling so hopeless about you know, the situation they're in and they're you know, probably so f- filled up with substances and other things and marriage breakups and all the rest of it. You know, people feel hopeless, don't they? They didn't have a suicide problem. And people from surrounding nations were looking on and saying, wow, how did these, these people are very smart in the way they've organised their country. Wonder We should do that too. Now, did they come up with these things themselves? No. God gave them ten commandments. He gave them rules about how they were to treat their neighbours and how they were to interact with families and things like this to stop these problems happening or to deal with them quickly if they arose. Not only that, have a look at this. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 25. Yeah, God just didn't dump and run, did he? Jeremiah 7.25 says that God sent them messengers from heaven. It says, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up daily, early, and sending them. Yeah. So God gave them the rules, but then he sent prophets to remind them of things, to teach them things, to keep them on the right track with messages directly from heaven. You know, nowadays what we do is we send people to university and, you know, they study scientifically, hopefully, or they get indoctrinated with whatever philosophy is on the go at that time to try and solve the world's problems. And then, you know, they have to write 100,000 words or something some extraordinary length of you know writing and then if you want to go and learn something you have to go and read these copious pages of highly intellectualized and often useless pieces of information some of it useful god says this is all well and good but i'm going to send you messages directly from heaven to help you solve the problems that are going to arise along the way to remind you of what I've said, to keep you right. Well, not only that, Exodus 15, verse 26. God said, And if you will diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and to all his statutes, what would God do? 
I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Do you know they've done uh, archaeological digs in Egypt, and they found that the Egyptians suffered from many of the diseases that we are suffering from today. Yeah? Now you think, oh, what was it? You know, bubonic plague or, or you know, AIDS or stuff like this. No, not that sort of stuff. Lifestyle illnesses caused by eating and drinking the wrong things at the wrong times. Yeah? A lifestyle of sitting down on your, on your chair all day instead of being out working. Yeah? Lifestyle caused by the spreading of disease among them. Yeah? And of course some of the other family, or should I say anti-family practices that went on probably resulted in other diseases spreading as well. Yeah? But God said, if you follow my laws, none of these diseases I'll allow to come upon you. It wasn't a direct miracle, necessarily. It was because God knew the right way to live, didn't he? He knew the right things to eat and to drink, and you know, the, way, the right time to go to bed and get up, and you know, all this kind of thing. And so God gave them a health message to keep them from getting sick like the other nations around them. Exodus 26 and verse 30. It says, And you shall rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was shown you in the mount. Psalm 77 verse 13. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? In other words, God gave Moses a glimpse of the heavenly sanctuary. He let Moses see into heaven. And then he said to him, I want you to make an earthly sanctuary just like the one you've seen in heaven to teach them about the plan of salvation. You wonder why they sacrificed all those lambs and went through all those ceremonies? To teach them about what God was doing to save humankind. Amazing. Do you know other nations? They sacrificed pigs and humans gave them a very distorted view of God didn't it but God gave Moses a view of the true plan of salvation and of course Ezekiel 20 verse 20 says and hallow my Sabbaths and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God God gave them the Sabbath as a sign that they were God's people. They lived differently to everyone else. Everyone else chose their own times to rest and work and play. But the Israelites set aside the seventh day. Set them aside from everyone else. And it was a sign that they were God's people. Incredible. And so God had given all these things and much, much more. To the Jewish nation. And what had they done with it? What had they done with it? They had used it for themselves. Just like this unfaithful trustee. You know, it got so bad. You know, when Jesus was born, 
three wise men from the east came with rich gifts. They came to the religious leaders. Do you know anything about this uh, Messiah that's meant to... No, we don't know anything about it. Sorry, we never... What? They were good for nothing. God had given them a knowledge of all the things they needed to bless the world with. And they kept it to themselves and thought of themselves as better than anybody else. And Jesus warned them, he said, soon you're going to be called to account. What have you done with all that information, with all those blessings, with that health message, the knowledge of the plan of salvation, the Sabbath, with the messages from the prophets, what have you done with it? God was going to call them to account. Have you used it to bless the world? Have you used it for the purposes that I gave it to you? Or have you just kept it for your own benefit and thought of yourself as more privileged than everybody else? Judgment was coming. Jesus was reminding them, you're in debt. You're in debt to God for all the things that he's given to you. And everything that you've got right now is going to be taken away from you. And when that happens, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when all these gospel privileges that you've enjoyed for so long are taken away? Some of us know what that's like, don't we? Now, not so much here because you could still come to church most of the time. But I know down in Christchurch, you've got a church of 270 people. When COVID strikes and they limit you, they were going to say 10 at one point. I think they expanded it to 25. There's no getting together in church. Some people lost their jobs, couldn't go to church. They lost their families because their families wouldn't talk to them or have anything to do with them. They realize pretty quickly how, how easy it is to lose things. And Jesus said to the disciples and to the, the Jewish leaders around him, time is coming where you're going to face judgment. You're going to be audited. And all the things that you've been given are going to be taken away from you. What are you going to do? You're walking around the place now in all these rich robes showing how important you are and how righteous you are. How much better you are than all these Romans and other, you call them dogs. What are you going to do? What will you have? The answer was nothing. And so Jesus said to them, Make yourselves friends from the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when you fail, they will receive you into everlasting habitations. The only way you're going to get, you're going to have anything to recommend you into heaven, Jesus says, is if you take the stuff that you've got and you give it away to people. Do what this dishonest man did. Take your master's goods that he's entrusted you with and give them to people as quickly as you can. Jesus said in Matthew 25 verse 40, I say to you, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. You have to unite with the heavenly angels and giving away the news of salvation, giving away the plan that God has for humanity. Give it to those around you. And that way, 
the others who have been saved, the angels who have worked with you, and Jesus himself, when you come to eternal life, they'll say to themselves, Ah, oh, this is Manu. Yeah, we know her. Yeah, she's a friend of ours. You know, she's my cousin. <laughs> yeah, as they say. Here's Joy over here. Do you know her? Oh, yes, we know her. She's a friend of ours. Let her in. We've got to get smart, Jesus said. We're in debt for the things that God has given to us. And Jesus wanted them to realize that unless they gave these things away, unless they gave away the treasures that God had entrusted to them, they were going to have nothing when the audit was finished and no friends to recommend them. Unfortunately, the Jewish nation made the wrong decision, didn't they? In AD 31, do you know what they did? Those of you who have studied Bible prophecy, you ought to know this. AD 31, what happened then? The crucifixion of Jesus. They crucified the Messiah. AD 34, what happened then? Spot on. They confirmed their rejection of Jesus by murdering Stephen the deacon. And in AD 70, the city that God had established, what happened? The Romans destroyed it. And the temple, their prized possession, the sign that they were so wonderful, the privilege they gave to people to come and look at it, yeah? was completely destroyed. It's a sobering warning, isn't it? What does it mean for you and I? What have we been entrusted with? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says, As every man has received the gift, so even so minister the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, sometimes we don't appreciate what we've been given. You know, we take it for granted. You know, we say to ourselves, oh, if we were alive when Jesus came, we wouldn't have crucified him. Yeah. We would have stood up for him. We wouldn't have done what they did. Do you find yourself thinking that sometimes? You know, we've got the privilege of looking back and seeing all the mistakes they made. We were talking about in class this morning. The Bible is a case book of how God has dealt with people in the past, how he's dealt with wrongdoing, how he's blessed, with blessed people, how he's looked after his people. We've got the blessing of seeing all of that. They had to believe that the Messiah would come. We have seen it happen. We've got the record of it. We are stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we too will face judgment. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 says... So every one of us will give an account of himself to God. And do you know what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17? It says, The time is come that judgment must begin where? At the house of God. We are told in the scriptures that the judgment at the end time begins with us, with people who say they believe in Jesus. Because those people have been entrusted with the treasures of heaven. Of the grace of God. 
and they have been entrusted with sharing it with the world. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 tells us, you know the prophecy, to 2,300 days, or in prophetic terms, what does that mean? Years. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. In October 22, 1844, the Bible tells us that 2,300 years came to an end and the judgment began. And as we saw just a moment ago, judgment begins, this judgment is for us. It's a judgment of God's people. The most solemn day it was in the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. Let me read you something in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 27. At the end of this day, the Day of Atonement, if you failed the audit, if your life was not right with God, you would be cut off from among God's people. Sobering? Listen to this. It's describing this Day of Atonement judgment. They had a service. To, you know, I told you the sanctuary service taught them about the plan of salvation. So they had a Day of Atonement to teach them about what would happen at the end of time. And this is, what, this is how they were to keep the Day of Atonement. Listen to this. On the tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. You shall do no work in that day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it shall be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 30. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. You shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even. From even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So the day of atonement was like a Sabbath, a solemn day. They were to review their lives, to make sure that they were right, to make sure the books were clean. A very solemn day. And anyone who didn't go through that process, who left things on the books, sin unconfessed, unrepented of, would be cut off from among God's people. It was a sign of what's to happen at the end in the Day of Atonement, which began in 1844 and will continue until Jesus says time is no more. Time for reviewing our lives, for making sure that we are right with God. Revelation 22 verse 11 records what Jesus will say at the end of that day of atonement. It says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Are there any second chances after this Day of Atonement is finished? That's it, isn't it? There's no second round. As Paul said, now is the day of salvation. We have to make sure that we're right with God. So I want to ask you this morning, Masterton Church, how will we fare in the judgment? When God reviews our lives, when he reviews our trusteeship, of the things that God has given to us to bless the world with? Have we lived out that example before others? 
Have we shown them the blessings that they can get in the way that we've lived, in the way that we've shared? Or have we just thought ourselves privileged enough to know, thought of ourselves as a cut above everybody else, and kept it to ourselves? How will we fare at the end when everything that we have here is taken away? This world is going to end. And when that happens, will we have friends, people that we've shared the gospel with, people that we've been a Christian example to, that themselves have decided to follow God? And when we come to eternal life, they'll stand there and say, yeah, we know Tim. He told us about heaven. Oh yes, we know Grace. She told us about heaven. Because of her example, we decided to follow God too. Will we have friends that will recommend us into heaven? Or will the people around us disown us? Say, no, we never knew them. They, never told, they knew all that stuff. They never told us about it. Sometimes it's easy to only focus on the here and now. But you know, in the end, the Bible says that everyone that has money, you know what they're going to do with it? They're going to throw it into the street. (laughs) They're going to say, what good is it? Isaiah tells us that. Isaiah 2 and verse 20 says they'll cast it to the moles and the bats. We don't have moles in New Zealand, I don't think. We have bats. You know, when I was a finished university, I remember travelling over to the Solomon Islands. And while I was there, I got very, very sick. Sickest I've ever been, and I've never quite recovered. I actually believed I was going to die. Here I was, seemed like half a world away from home. They thought it was malaria. But they couldn't find it on the blood slide. I was running temperatures of you know, 41 degrees. You know, hallucinogenic. And I was lying downstairs in a, a house. There were cockroaches, you know, bigger than the ones in Masterton, crawling over the floor. It was stinking hot. You know, over 40 degrees is, is normal there. Sweating profusely. You know, going in and out of what seemed like consciousness, but it was probably sleep, with bars on the window, because it's not safe. You know, it's like a prison. When you go to the front door to get out, there's a big metal gate that covers the front door. And I remember lying there crying. I'd just finished university. I had all my degrees. You know, I'd been given a promising salary and a job. I ended up with an ulcerated eye. And they thought I was going to lose my sight. And I remember crying out to God and saying, God, don't let me die here. Please don't let me die here. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to die. And all my university education and all the money I had in the bank wasn't a lot, but it seemed like a lot to me as a student. It gave me a wee bonus to start work. 
All of it was useless. I couldn't buy my way out of that. I couldn't write an essay to get me an A on my essay to get me out of that. All of it was useless. My family was, you know, thousands of miles away. I had nothing. And friends, that's what it's going to be like when this world comes to an end. The career you've built, the house you've bought, the money in your retirement savings, all the people that think you're cool, or all the relationships you've been working on, they're not going to be worth anything. The only thing that's going to be worth something is how you stand in relation to God. He's going to say to you and to me, what have you done? What have you done with the truth? What have you done with the message that I've given to you? Have you lived it? Have you shared it? Will others see when they look at you? Will they see an example? Will they recommend you into heaven because of what you've done with what I've entrusted you? Friends, I want to be a good steward. I want to be true to the trust that God's placed in me. And I want to live the life that's going to commend me. When this world is over, I want Jesus to welcome me. And I want you and you and you and all of you to be there with me. Is that your desire this morning? No matter what trouble you've got out there, are you able to say, it's well. It's well with my soul. It's your desire to share with me in that determination today, that commitment. I want to invite you to stand as we sing our final hymn. It is well. It is well. This message was made available by the Masterton Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit mastertonsta.nz.
assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is Capeldridge sang, It is well with my soul. Coming up next, the Clark family will sing, A World We Never Touch. He walked along the shores of Galilee. From clay he formed the healing balm that caused the blind to see. While stones of wrath lay heavy, their hands He knelt to write his mercy in the sand Jesus came to set the captive free Showed us by the way he lived the way we need to be Touch them with compassion 
tip lady and I love to give tips to help make your life more simple. Do you ever feel that your life is just pretend? That you're all show and no punch? That you're going absolutely nowhere? Well we were out walking the other day and we spotted an old wagon in a weedy overgrown paddock. We thought that there must be some interesting mystery there so we hiked over to investigate. And surprise, it was a wagon. But it had fixed wooden wheels that had never turned as wheels do. It was all show and no do. It never had done anything. It had just sat there since the day it was built. It was just pretend. 
It had never creaked and rattled its way along a dusty trail. It had never carried weary travellers to far-off destinations. It's never been anywhere. Just where it was built, right there. Do you ever feel that your life is just pretend too? Remember, we've just asked that. Do you feel you're going nowhere? Well, that's what my two tips are all about today. There's a way to fix that. Guess what it is? So simple. First tip today is start moving. Well, how? Take actions that will make you feel like you're going to want to feel. Don't wait to feel different. So here's tip number two. Start doing what you really would like to do because feelings will follow your actions. You'll not have to feel that your life is pretend that you're not going anywhere because you'll be moving. So do you want new feelings? Want to feel like your life is on the move again? That you're not at a standstill like the sad old wagon? Then start doing what you want to do whether you feel like it or not. And positive, happy, successful feelings will follow. So I have two simple tips for today. Start moving and start doing what you really would like to do. You will be surprised what directions your life takes and how far you can go. That's it today from the Two Tip Lady who loves to help make your life more simple. Do this and you'll feel better, guaranteed. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.